message this morning from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. After an extended period of following Jesus and seeing his miracles, it's time for Jesus to reveal his full identity and his full purpose to his disciples. The title of the sermon, Jesus died for you so that you could die for him. It's intended to be a provocative title. Well, let me think about that for a second. Why would somebody die for me only for me to have to turn around and and die for them? And as we heard this morning, if, if you were here when we began worship in heard these verses filled with these kinds of paradoxical statements from Jesus. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to find life, you have to lose life. And we know that Jesus began teaching in these kinds of parables as a form of judgment that people didn't want to hear the plain, obvious teachings. And so for those who were going to harden their heart against the gospel, um, the parables just served as judgment. For those with humble, soft, teachable hearts, this kind of teaching makes you lean in closer and ask deeper questions and want to know what Jesus meant. So let me back up to verse 18. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen Again, remember Elijah was carried away to heaven in the chariot of fire. So they wouldn't say about Elijah that he's risen. And so everybody had a theory or an opinion about who Jesus was. And Jesus wanted to hear from the disciples what they were hearing the people saying as they went out and ministered in his name. But then the big question, but who do you say that I am? Doesn't matter what other people believe about Jesus. It matters what you believe about Jesus. It's interesting, there's a clue here at the end of the question. I am. You know that's the covenant name of God. I am. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say Jesus is today in our culture or even around the world? You get all kinds of answers to that question. A a great teacher, a prophet a mythical legend. Even those who would affirm that he's the son of God may not affirm that he is to be Lord of their life. For many, Jesus is their therapist. I go to him when I'm troubled and he affirms me. He loves me when no one else will love me. He listens to me when no one else will listen to me. He agrees with me when no one else will agree with me. For others, Jesus is a political liberator. Social justice warrior. There's elements of truth to all of these answers. He was a prophet. He was a a legendary leader. He 
does love you and listens to your troubles and cares about your suffering. He is a liberator. He'll come back and be a political liberator, but we know above and beyond that, he's a liberator from our sins. He is interested in social justice. He cares for the oppressed and the poor and the weak and the hungry. But in our culture, liberation has now been hijacked. Anyone who feels oppressed, anyone who believes they're being bullied, And if a privileged kid at an Ivy League school with a full-ride scholarship can call himself oppressed, then certainly all of us can find something to call ourselves oppressed about. And so Jesus becomes this social justice warrior, this political liberator, almost like a Che Guevara kind of figure. Uh, a Karl Marx kind of figure. He's an he's a economic liberator. He was all about redistributing wealth. And we know these things are not true. And it's easy to see in others... Their mistaken notions of Jesus. But this morning I'm going to call you and myself to search our own hearts to where we have mistaken notions about who Jesus is and what he has called us to be. Peter answers because he always answers. <laughs> right? You are the Christ of God. Or in Matthew's gospel, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets the right answer. And yet, he thought that he understood everything that that answer meant. He had an idea in his mind about who the Christ of God would be and what he would do, and when he would do it, and how he would go about doing it, and oh, by the way, who would be his right-hand man. He had the right answer, but he had the wrong agenda. This is emblematic of all of us. To one degree or another, we who call ourselves Christians, have the right answer, but because of our fallenness, have the wrong agenda. We project onto Jesus the agenda we want. It's easy to follow someone when you think that leader is going to do all the things that you would have them do. Easy to follow that lead. We hear this often in marital counseling, right? The Bible has a difficult calling for the husband and the wife. But for the wife to submit to her husband's leadership, and at some point, what you end up hearing is, well, when he leads like this, I'll follow. <laughs> and yet... That clause is missing. In the husband's to love his wife sacrificially. Well, when she's appreciative of my leadership, I will love sacrificially. That clause is missing as well. If you'll only follow a leader who will do everything you want them to do and think everything you want them to think and say everything you want them to say, they're not really your leader. 
you're following yourself. The true test of being a follower of any leader is what happens when their ideas, their commands, their leadership clashes with your ideas and your desires and your expectations. Now you find out if you really are submitting to that leadership. And we know that the disciples had the wrong idea about who the Christ would be and what he would accomplish. The Bible tells us again and again they had the wrong idea. Where did they get these wrong ideas from? An incomplete understanding and reading of the Old Testament. They had part of the story. You'll meet Jewish people today and talk to them about Messiah and and they will explain much of what the Old Testament has to say about Messiah. For some reason, though, they completely ignore Isaiah 53, which perfectly describes Jesus' sacrificial atonement for our sins. I've heard stories of people witnessing to Jews and giving them their Bible to read Isaiah 53 and them saying, that's not in the Bible. You gave me a doctored Bible. Because it so obviously describes Jesus, the suffering servant. Their view of Jesus is the geopolitical, conquering king, wipe out Rome, sit on David's throne, and reign and bring peace and prosperity and the happy, easy life of rest to his people Israel. And if we're honest with ourselves, just remove the Israel part and put us there, and that's what we're all looking for. The easy, happy life of rest and prosperity. It's the way Jesus is often preached in our modern culture. We call it the easy beliefism gospel. Jesus came to meet all of your felt needs. And certainly it's okay when you begin a relationship with someone and seeing where they're hurting and where they're suffering and where there's pain and and tell them God loves you and he cares about your hurts. But to leave somebody there is dishonoring to Christ and cruel and unloving to that person. They need to understand that the source of all human pain and suffering is sin and that we all sin. We all contribute to human suffering and pain. As humbling as it is to consider this, you have been the cause of other people's suffering. As easy it is for you to say, this person hurt me, this person has upset me, this person abandoned me, this person didn't love me. There are people all around you thinking the same thing about you. We've all contributed to the mess we find ourselves in. But most people stop their gospel presentation with, Jesus loves you. Well, how do I know he loves me? Well, he died on the cross for you. That makes absolutely no sense as a demonstration of love if you weren't guilty of, unless you were guilty of some heinous crime. You know, well, I don't need him to die for me. I just want him to fix my life and give me all the things that I think I deserve and put all my enemies in their place, make the path of life smooth, 
our gospel presentation sometimes must sound completely ridiculous to people. And we assume that they understand what we're talking about. Jesus loves you. Then why is my life such a mess? And why is there so much pain and suffering? I don't believe this God loves me. Well, he does. I can prove it to you. Look at the cross. Well, how is that improving my life? What kind of gift is that? Unless you understand that what you needed more than anything else is his atoning sacrifice to pay for your sins, then it doesn't look like a gift of love. So the disciples had this idea in their minds, and we all do, about what life ought to be and what Jesus ought to be. One writer said, it's like we all have a movie running in our mind that explains reality. And when somebody does something that doesn't line up with the movie, we have a choice to make. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, if you want your 10 cent term. Cognitive thinking, dissonance, like disconnect. Wait a minute. Don't people know the movie's supposed to go like this? What's up? And you have a choice to make. You can either say, maybe I'm playing the wrong movie in my mind. Or you could say, everybody else is living the wrong movie. Which one do you think we naturally do? All of us. I've got the right movie in my mind. I have the right interpretation of reality. I have the correct definitions. I have the good plan. And the disciples were no different. And we know this because he begins to explain to them, don't tell anyone. Because the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And this was not the way the movie was supposed to go. How do we know this? If we look in Matthew's gospel, the same story, Matthew 16, 16. Put that up on the board, please. There you go. Right after the question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona just means son of Jonah, son of John. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, we can tell people who Jesus is. We can teach it in Sunday school and the kids go, "Uh uh-huh, he's the son of God. He died on the cross for my sins. It's beautiful. It's precious. And that's what we're called to do and, and pray for them. But you realize that God will have to reveal it to their hearts. You can have the correct Sunday school answer like Peter. You are the Christ. And yet in your heart, say, and this is exactly what I mean by the Christ. And then you find out Jesus is a different Christ than what you wanted him to be. This is why it's common testimony for children to make a profession of faith in the church and then drift and then truly get saved later. Don't assume that every kid that makes a profession of faith, it's not a legitimate profession of faith. And don't assume that every profession of faith is a legitimate profession of faith. Encourage every profession of faith in Jesus. And keep preaching the gospel. That's my personal policy for my own heart. 
and for that of my family. Encourage every profession of faith and keep preaching the gospel because the heart is wicked and deceitful. So after Peter gets the answer correct, Jesus goes on to explain that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And we go, yeah, we know that. Because we're on this side of the cross. They didn't understand. That wasn't the way it was supposed to happen according to their movie. And Peter took him, Jesus, God in human flesh, King of King, Lord of Lords, the way, the truth, and the life, the source of all knowledge and wisdom, and rebuked him. <gasps> saying, God forbid it. It's actually a euphemism. The, the word God isn't in the euphemism, but they, the translators decided that was the closest English translation. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, and this is right after he praises Peter for his profession of faith and says, you are a rock. His name, Peter, means rock in Greek. And he'd also call, uh, call him Cephas. You've heard that name for Peter as well. And he says, and on this on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. And, and we take it to mean that on this profession of faith Peter just made, that is how Christ will build his church. That profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and just a few verses later, Peter's rebuking Jesus and Jesus rebukes him back and says, Get behind me, Satan. Anytime we're not submitting to Jesus and agreeing with his agenda, we are following Satan's agenda. Well, I'm not following Satan's agenda. Anytime you're following your own agenda, you're following Satan's agenda. That's his agenda. That's what he did in the garden in Genesis 3. Get Adam and Eve to follow their own agenda. Be your own God. Be your own Lord. Be your own interpreter of reality. Be your own judge of what is right and wrong. Plan out your own life without consulting God. That is Satan's agenda. Jesus dying was not on Peter's agenda. His agenda was Peter goes into Rome, kicks some you-know-what, sets up his throne, and Peter sits on the right. That's the plan in Peter's mind. Well, why should you get to sit on the right? Because I'm Peter. Who else would sit there? Hello? Right? That's our attitude. And some of you have that attitude with boldness. And some of you have the same attitude, but it hides behind shyness. Oh, I could never sit on the right. Oh, come on. You know that's where you think you should be sitting. But in your pride, you don't want to look arrogant. So you play the, oh, I could never sit on the right. Okay, we'll put someone else there. Hey, there you go. So back to Luke. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here's what absolutely blew me away this week in my study. Remember on this theme of you can't interpret the Bible correctly unless you first put yourself in the shoes of the original audience. This is the first time in Scripture that Jesus mentions the cross and it's not referring 
to the mode of his own death. We see cross and we automatically assume, oh, he's talking about him dying on the cross. Sure, he's alluding to that, but look more closely. He was telling them that he'd have to suffer and die, but he doesn't explicitly say how he would die yet. And the first time he talks about the cross, it's in the context of if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. Now, for a Jew, this is the most heinous command one could ever think of. The cross was Rome's way of executing the worst of the worst and to publicly humiliate you and shame you and intimidate everyone from ever even thinking about usurping Rome's authority. The cross was for insurrectionists, those trying to overthrow Rome. This is how ISIS has been killing Christians, making a public spectacle. It takes a long time to die on the cross. The pain is so horrifying, they had to invent a word, excruciating. It has the word crucifix, crucify, cross, right in the word. The death penalty for a Jew would be stoning. The reason Jesus would die on the cross was because the Jewish leaders would convince Rome that he was calling himself king over Caesar. When one had to take up their cross, that's the horizontal part of the cross, you would have to carry your own crossbar to the place of crucifixion. The walk of shame, talk about adding insult to injury. Shame on you and your entire family and everyone would see you carrying that that cross and then nailed to that cross, usually completely naked. completely and utterly exposed and humiliated in excruciating pain. We see the cross as an emblem of love and sacrifice and honor and beauty. That makes it easy for us to hear, deny yourself and take up your cross. Oh, I'll take up the cross. The cross is beautiful to me. Wait a minute. You need to put yourself in the shoes of the original audience. This would have been absolutely horrifying. In fact, we find out that they blind themselves and stop up their ears, so to speak. They did not want to hear this. Did not want to hear this. Jesus was not making it easy at all to follow him. Interesting, back in Matthew, when, when Peter says, God forbid this should ever happen to you, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he calls Peter a stumbling block, a, a stumbling rock. See the play on words? He went from being the rock of the foundation of the church, his profession of faith, to the kind of rock that trips people up. Because you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. There it is. There it is. That's us. That's our problem. We set our minds on the interest of man and not God's. This is our chief problem. 
We get up in the morning and from the moment we awake, everything is about what I want today, what I want to accomplish for me. My goals, my dreams, my aspirations, the things I want to buy. I only half-jokingly say that if there's no half and half in the fridge, that could pretty much ruin my morning. Great. If I don't have a good cup of coffee in the morning, then... And I know better. I know the right things to think. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me come up here and teach. I know the right attitudes to have. I know the right things to say. I know what the agenda ought to be. And like Paul says in Romans 7, I find something in myself that wants to do the opposite and wants to think the opposite and even convinces myself I have a right to demand my way. So then, what does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? We need to understand this. Jesus says, if you want to follow him, this is what you have to do. So what does it mean? It obviously doesn't literally mean die a martyr's death, but for some it may mean that. Certainly in the case of the apostles, it did mean that. But if you've tried for any length of time to die to your own agenda, you may understand me when I tell you that martyrdom sometimes seems easier than dying daily to your own agenda. Not taking away from any hero who jumps on a grenade literally for his fellow warriors. But that same man may not be able to jump on the figurative grenades day in and day out. Death of a thousand cuts. Dying daily and slowly to your desires and your expectations and your agenda. It's painful. And if you're not intentionally engaged at it and, and go on autopilot for just a second, there's no neutral. You go right back to being your own Lord. It happens so quickly, doesn't it? And you find yourself saying, well, it's someone else's turn to die to themselves today. <laughs> I was trying to think of the best way to explain what this denying yourself means. So let's take the literal and then use that to understand the figurative. If you were convicted of a crime worthy of death by crucifixion, there was no opportunity for a pardon. That was it. That was the end of the line. It wasn't like today where you, you can appeal it in court for decades and sit on death row forever. That was it. And so the follower of Christ must acknowledge every day, I am guilty. I am guilty. First thought every morning. I don't deserve another day. This is a gift. This is a gift. The whole day is a gift. Every breath is a gift.
You don't have a choice whether or not you want to take up your cross. This is the second thing you must acknowledge. It wasn't like they said, would you like to carry your cross? Would you like to choose your mode of execution? We're somewhat soft on our criminals. Simon of Cyrene took up Jesus' cross because Jesus no longer had the physical strength to carry it. And we look at Simon of Cyrene and we say, wow, I wish that could have been me. No, you don't. You don't understand then. You don't understand how shameful and horrible it would have been to carry a cross for somebody in an honor-shame society. It would be like carrying somebody's noose or their electric chair. People are going to associate it with you. They didn't want anything to do with the cross. When you pick up your cross, you're admitting to the world that I'm a sinner. I'm I'm worthy of death. And only because Jesus died the death I deserved on the cross do I have any hope. Do I have any joy? Do I have any right to say anything and speak any truth into your life? That's what it means to take up up the cross. Frankly, I get exasperated by how many celebrities boldly wear crosses because it's trendy. You know what you're saying. I don't read the tabloids, but if you're on the internet for any length of time, you're going to find out most of these people aren't living like Christians. We understand what part of society most celebrities are from. There's no way that if they really, truly were following Jesus, that the celebrity world would embrace them wearing a cross. I'm not saying all celebrities who wear a cross aren't true believers. But I would be very careful about getting excited that your favorite celeb... Oh, they got a cross on. I, I just knew it. Oh. If, if they were truly proclaiming what Christ proclaims, they would never get another part in a movie again. They would be shunned from Hollywood. It, it's, a, it's a high cost. Philosophers talk about what it means, what life means. And they kind of break up philosophy into five main areas. And we, we could narrow that down to three. So here they are. Area number one, ethics. What is right and wrong? Right? That's got to be part of life. What is right and wrong? Number two, logic. Like, what are the rules for even thinking? Have you ever tried to speak with someone who's being illogical? <laughs> it's, it's exasperating. You can't get anywhere. They're playing by different rules. Number three is aesthetics. What is beautiful? I thought that was subjective. There's elements of subjectivity. And we all try to say beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But there's ugly art. And you know it's ugly because they have to get a grant from the National Foundation for the Arts. No one's paying to see that. We have to subsidize ugly art. True beauty, people flock to go see, right? 
you got to wait in line to go to Yosemite. God's art is beautiful. We can combine ethics, logic, and aesthetics into saying this is the way. This is the way, the right way to live. This is the beautiful way to live. This is the logical way to live. The fourth area we call epistemology, which just means how do we know what's true? If you don't know what's true, then you're not going to get anywhere. And think about our culture today, right? Fake truth and fake news and alternate facts. And this is all because of postmodernism coming in and saying truth can't be knowable. But if we can't know truth, then... No one's dying to anything. We live in a culture now that's saying you don't need to die to your version of the truth, even if it's wrong. It can just be your truth. It's strange, though, the same people who say that are also telling you, and here's the truths you're allowed to believe. The fifth area of philosophy is called metaphysics, and that is what is reality. That's kind of the overarching category for all the other categories. What is reality? What is life? And so the philosophers, the erudite, the academic elites say, look, Jesus had nothing to say about these topics. He's just this nice religious figure who came and spread love and good, good cheer around you. No. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He covered the big areas of philosophy and didn't just say, I've got some good ideas about these three things. He said, I am the origin, the source, the embodiment, the incarnation of all of these things that humanity says are the most important questions in life. That is why who you say Jesus is, is ultimately the most important question. And to answer it correctly, you have to say, I am willing to die to all my other answers to those questions. My ideas about what is right and wrong, my ideas about the right way to think. The Bible's very logical until you hit some passages that don't seem to follow human logic. How can he be fully man and fully God? Wait, how could he be three persons but one God? Wait. How can he be everlasting? I can't even wrap my head around that. Like, when did God start? How can something be eternal? You have to be willing to die to your idea of beauty. Jesus dying on the cross is one of the most beautiful things ever. And one of the most horrendous, ugliest things that nobody in their right mind would say is beautiful. And yet, as a Christian, you say that that is maybe the most beautiful thing. You have to die to your idea of what you think is truth. And your idea of what you think is life. Often, we come to Jesus first as this idea of, wow, God loves me. Okay, I'll follow that, that God. Now, back to my life and my agenda and my ideas, and I've got God's love in my back pocket. And then later we come to an understanding, well, maybe I have committed a few sins. Sure glad he died for me, but 
in our heart of hearts, we almost think it's overkill. Getting to that place in your walk with God where you come to acknowledge that, wait a minute, He wants me to completely wipe the hard drive and reload His operating system. Give him complete control. Everything I thought before, I have to question and start over from scratch with the Bible. Everything. Everything. Jennifer and I came to the Lord in a church that helped us understand that God loved us. For someone who was raised in a Catholic church, that, that, that was news. She knew God was mad at her. And maybe if she worked hard enough, he might let her into his kingdom. And that may be a misrepresentation of what Catholicism teaches, but I've heard from Catholic after Catholic after Catholic, that's the message they heard. I heard an opposite message. My church was pretty much, well, of course he loves you. <laughs> Why wouldn't he? People are lovable. It should be easy for Jesus to love. When we heard the true gospel, we ended up in a church that did a pretty good job discipling us, but there was a huge missing piece of the equation church was great at reaching hurting people. Except everyone kind of just stayed hurting. It's hard to tell someone who's hurting that, first and foremost, you're the source of all your problems. Who wants to hear that? But that's exactly what we need to hear in order for the hurt to go away. And um, the church grew rapidly because who wouldn't want to come to a church that affirmed you in your hurt? And then it began to dwindle and fall apart because no one had answers. Marriage is falling apart. No one had answers. When I believed God was calling me to be a pastor, I knew I needed more training but to be honest with you, the overriding reason I wanted to go to seminary was I need answers. If after three years I don't become a pastor but I get answers, it would be worth it. To just call time out from the rat race of life and and how confusing life was for us, even as Christians, and we were growing in the Lord, but there was just so much mess and frustration. And I'd been listening to John MacArthur on the radio, and I'm like, this guy just cuts it straight. And he, he's not going to sugarcoat anything. And he's not known for being touchy-feely, is he? I wasn't going to become a disciple of John MacArthur. I just wanted to go to a place where people would say, here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. You decide if you're going to believe it or not. I was past the point of needing somebody to coddle me. Needed to hear God's word. And this process began of God tearing down everything and rebuilding us back up. Jennifer described it as this. I feel like God is killing me. Painful. Why is he doing this to me? Everything I thought about myself as a wife, a mother, a woman... It is painful to die, isn't it? But if 
You trust the one who gave his life for you and suffered more than you ever will. That after the pain comes glory and satisfaction and freedom and peace and wholeness. Then trust him when he says, pick up your cross. Wait a minute, I know what that is. I know what that is for. Pick up your cross. Follow me. He went first. So much easier to trust someone who went before you and did it. And rose again on the third day in glorious, beautiful resurrection glory. That's what awaits you after dying to self. In the figurative sense, your life will be completely different and you'll find peace and satisfaction and joy inexpressible. Well, what's it, what's it going to cost? Well, it costs Jesus everything. Spiritually, it costs you nothing. But it's going to cost you everything in the sense that all of your ideas, all of your thoughts, all of your plans, you got to throw out the window. It can't be you living anymore. It has to be Christ living in you to be truly life. And it's a daily decision. Day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment. It doesn't come natural. Christians have all different kinds of ways to remind us of this. The what would Jesus do? Wait a minute. Before I act, before I speak, before I decide, what does the Bible have to say about this? Let me talk to other Christians who are wiser than I am and have walked longer with Christ than I have. What do they have to say? I think I'm doing well, but what do my brothers and sisters in Christ see in me? That's dangerous. To allow people to speak truth in your life, to evaluate you. This is not normal living, but normal living isn't living, Jesus says. For whoever wishes to save his life, that kind of life where you get the final say in all things you, that's not life. If you are trying to cling to that, you're going to die. But if you will willingly die to that, you will live. It's not a paradox. You can understand this. God can help you understand this. Trust Him. He died for you. And Jesus is more alive than anyone else. We, we know we're supposed to say die to self, and I think sometimes we think... Well, I let someone have the last cookie. Wow. That is so sacrificial. Before you twist your arm, patting yourself on the back, realize that he's calling us to so much more. It's not a game of how much more I can sacrifice than the next person. If that's your view of this, you miss the whole point completely. Your sacrifice is uglier than if you hadn't made the sacrifice. The sacrifice you're supposed to make is dying to all of your misperceptions, all of your ideas, all of your agenda, and embracing Christ's agenda, His truth, His definitions of reality, His purpose for your life. Because no matter how Fulfilling your life seems without Jesus, you have nothing. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What if you, hypothetically, not that this could ever happen, but did have the life you wanted? All the toys you wanted, the fame you wanted, the relationships you wanted. And you might be saying, 
I think I have some pretty good ideas about those things. I understand there's worldly ideas about those things, but I think I've replaced them with good, noble, honest, God-honoring ideas. And Christ is saying, in your fallenness, even your best laid plans, if they're your plans, don't lead to life. If you got everything the way that you really wanted, but you didn't have Jesus, you'd have nothing. You'd have worse than nothing. Denying self is picking up your cross is saying, I die to the way I was. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not a better version of me. I'm a whole new me. It's no longer Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I trust that however my life turns out is exactly the way he wanted it to turn out for his glory. I can be content with what Christ has ordained for me, knowing that glory awaits me in heaven. But if I say I'm following Christ, yet in my heart of hearts, I'm ashamed of his words. Then the Son of Man will be ashamed of me when he comes in his glory. Lord, Lord, away from me, I never knew you. The more our culture drifts from Christ, the more your life will be compelling and repugnant simultaneously. Repugnant to those who hate Christ, compelling to those God is drawing to himself. And when they ask you, what makes the difference in your life? You'll tell them, it's all Christ. It's all Christ. And when the other crowd who's finds your faith repugnant, presses you, you'll give the same answer. Even if it will cost you popularity, your job, or maybe someday even your life. It's all Christ. No Christ, no life. To live is Christ. To die, more Christ. Die is gain. This has never been a popular message in the history of the church. I, I preach it in all humility and fear and trembling before the Lord. And I preach it to my own heart first. This is what was preached in the Reformation. Spurgeon preached this and was persecuted. It was called the downgrade controversy. And people said, would you just tone it down? You know, more people would come to church if you preach something more positive. Look, I can't think of anything more positive than this. I know on the surface it sounds horrible. Yeah, pick up your cross. Yeah, that, that'll preach. But dying to myself has made all the difference in my life. I had everything the world said you should want to make you happy, and I wasn't happy. And you might say, well, let me go figure it out for myself. Maybe you were doing it the wrong way. I hope you don't have to find out the hard way. Trust Christ. We are those who proclaim to the world, you want to live, you want happiness, you want joy, you want satisfaction. Go pick up one of those every day and, and die. And to the natural man, it won't make any sense in the world. Don't try to explain it away. If God in his sovereignty is giving people ears to hear, they'll get it. And it'll be the greatest news they ever heard. If they don't get it the first time you tell them, don't give up on them. But don't change the message. Every other message leads to death. 
Father, thank you for the cross and what it means. Life. It means death and a shame to the world. To us, it means life and joy everlasting. May we be faithful to preach the only gospel that saves and live our profession of faith. In Jesus' name and only by his power, amen.